whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Season 3 of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Thanks, Kieran. Thanks for inviting me on. So I'm Guy Longworth. I'm a philosopher at the University of Warwick in the UK. I guess I work mainly in epistemology these days. So I have interests around testimony and the transmission of knowledge through testimony and more general interests in knowledge and how we acquire knowledge and how we should understand what knowledge is. Well, I have lots of questions about your work that I would like to ask, which might not fit the podcast, but I may try to squeeze some of them in later. So uh, I'm going to do that by by first asking the official questions and then then, uh, seeing where it goes. So the inspiration for the podcast is Iris Murdoch. She begins by telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? It's a really good question. I guess I'm tempted to say that one aspect of my personality that influences my philosophy is cowardice. So I'm very careful or try and be very careful. I don't like to stick my neck out unless I feel pretty secure in what I have to say. And that requires kind of extensive philosophical reflection, thinking through arguments and so on. So I'm not what you might think of as a very conjectural, speculative philosopher. I like to take care and I like to go slowly. So that's that, that's one kind of trait. Uh, and I guess connected with that is defensiveness. So I tend to think that we do pretty well in advance of philosophy, independent of philosophical confusions that we're subject to or philosophical problems. So a lot of my philosophical thinking and my work is really about defending something like the status quo, we might think of as common sense. Does that defensiveness make doing philosophy challenging or or painful? I mean, philosophy is known to be, well, at worst aggressive, but even at best, a kind of highly critical field with a lot of critical engagement. Yeah, it, it can do. It makes me, you know, it makes me worry about making mistakes in a way that uh, you know, I'd rather not worry quite as much. But, but on the other hand, in, in some ways, it's easier to be defensive than to be offensive. So in many situations, I see my job as showing where some challenge to common sense goes wrong, rather than trying to argue from some kind of more general first principles that something that we find in common sense is right. So, so to that extent, there's a way in which my, my kind of temperament and my, my way of approaching philosophy makes things somewhat easier for me than it would be if I thought that, you know, we could always get very general first principle based arguments for philosophical conclusions. I mean, there's another question this raises that I'm curious about, which is about the sort of attraction to philosophy. So if what you think you're going to get out of philosophy is sort of revolutionary insights into reality, it's not hard to see why that might seem exciting. But I'm like you in that a lot of my philosophical 
interest is in defending what I already believed or what I what I think was the sort of common sense position. Can you say something about like the attraction or appeal or excitement of that? Because it, it can sound pretty, uh, it can sound dull. It can, and it can sometimes be dull. But on the other hand, I, I guess the value for me of doing philosophy has to do with understanding. And, you know, e- even if I start out with some view that I think is is both correct and, and part of common sense, it's not always obvious to me how it works, how it can be true, how it can be defended against various obvious or non-obvious seeming challenges. So, so I guess there's a kind of interest in seeing what more needs to be said around the margins in order to make sense of and defend some of the things that might otherwise seem to be commonplaces. And, and, and that can be interesting, challenging, fun sometimes. There's one other thing I'm going to ask, which is is not directly prompted by what you said, but comes out of curiosity about some of your work that I really love, which is about, you've written about the idea of sharing thoughts, sort of the I-you connection, and the idea that when I think I-thoughts, they're not really private. The very same thought can be entertained by someone else if we're engaged in direct dialogue. And sort of the foundations in the philosophy of mind and language for the specialness of the I-thou relation. And you've also written, I think, about the sort of ethical side of this, about the the value and importance of being known. I mean, does that interest connect to anything in your personality or your temperament, the kind of philosophical interest in the meeting of minds? Uh, well, I'm sure it does, but but nothing that I hope is distinctive of me. I mean, I think I, I do think it's a general feature of of most human beings that they care about having personal connections with other people. So they care about knowing other people and they care about being known. And in the most ordinary cases of knowing people, it goes in both directions. Knowing someone and being known by them are two sides of the same kind of coin. One one would think that that's a fairly kind of orthodox central feature of what most people most care about in much of their lives. So, So that figures. And I want to... I want to understand and again in part to defend natural understandings of that but I wouldn't think of that as a kind of special feature of my character unlike my cowardice uh-huh. uh, and my defensiveness were you led to be interested in the sort of IU connection through puzzles in the philosophy of mind and language or was your interest initially ethical and then became sublimated into these metaphysical issues I mean, a bit of both. I think the fundamental concern that drove my initial interest in, in the question about IU thinking had to do with communication and the nature of linguistic understanding. So there, one of, my, one of the things that I'm interested in defending is the idea that when I understand you in general, when I understand what you're saying to me, one of the crucial features of my understanding is simply my entertaining the thought you express, which is the very thought that you had in expressing it or before expressing it. So I like to think that in a very straightforward way, ordinary communication with language involves sharing of thoughts. And then the first person case, given the way it's often understood by philosophers, posed a particular kind of challenge there, a challenge to what I I would ordinarily think of as, as kind of flat common sense. So the interest there was, again, in defending what I, what I take to be a, a kind of pre-philosophical commonplace of sorts a, against a, a wide-ranging attack from, from philosophers. 
There are lots of things I want to ask you about this. I'm going to switch to a second question that is also about your philosophical views, and we'll see if this loops back to, to any of the issues that I'm still puzzling over. This is the question, have you changed your mind about anything important in philosophy? And if so, how? Wow. I mean, obviously, yes, I've been thinking about philosophy since I was probably a preteen. And like many baby philosophers, I probably started out as some sort of sceptical sense data trap mess. So there are lots and lots of, of views that are fairly significant views that have changed. So I'm no longer a, a serious sceptic, don't really believe in sense data and so on and so on. I guess, I guess though, amongst the things that I thought for a long time, right, right through probably my, my kind of pre-doctoral career and probably for a bit after that, is the thought that there's a really significant disconnect between theory and philosophy and practice. So in particular, that even in ethics or, or moral theorizing, there's a big difference between knowing what the thing to do is and being in a position to do it, indeed feeling required to do it. So, so I was always kind of a bit hesitant about getting involved in in ethics and surrounding areas just because I thought it was a little bit pointless because I thought you could take whatever view um, you were forced to take in those areas without it necessarily having any effect on what one got up to. And I guess that in more recent years, that view's changed. So I increasingly see theorising in philosophy of all sorts as more tightly bound up with practice than, than I used to think it was. That is very interesting. It has a Murdoch connection in that one of her central ideas in The Sovereignty of Good and in other places is that apparently neutral theoretical frameworks have moral implications and that there's a kind of tight connection between how we theorize about the world and how we act in it. There's sort of less of a gap there than we think. Was Murdoch someone who played a role in your thinking about this or is this a kind of independent transition? Well, n not independent, but I think Murdoch's role was indirect. So, so Murdoch's someone that I really appreciate, but I came to comparatively late, at least at, at least at first hand. But, but I think this was a feature of Murdoch's work that had an impact on other philosophers who then impacted more directly on me. So, so I guess I'm thinking in particular of John McDowell, but 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 there are others. Ray Gator would be a, would be another one. Yeah. These are people who've more directly influenced me, and in, in particular around this thought. Can I ask another random question? Just pointing back to the early part of your answer, you said you got interested in philosophy as a preteen, and were a, you know I was a teenage sense datum theorist, which which is true of me too. I I remember reading Russell's Bertrand Russell's Problems of Philosophy. And at that point, I didn't really know what philosophy was. So when he was describing the sort of idea of the sense datum theory that I'm really presented with just two-dimensional fields of color, I thought that was a, a thing he was just telling me, the way I, I might read a textbook about physics and be told various things that I should accept on authority. And it took a while for me to realize that that was something I could question. How did you get in, involved in that sort of morass of ideas? Well, in a similar way, so so it started out with my just worrying about various philosophical issues. So, but one of my early worries was about induction. So, I read somewhere that Rolls Royce cars have their seats tested by a machine that kind of tests them through movement about a million times, and I worried about what happened on the million and first um, uh -huh. wriggle. <laughs> 
and and I had various other you know various other related concerns and luckily my my father had some philosophical background and some philosophical books and and so I had Russell I had Lemon on logic and and various other bits and pieces so so I read I read quite a lot of that stuff as a young teen I guess and enjoyed it a lot but didn't read anything at that stage as doctrine I mean this would have been part of my skeptical <laughs> background so so I wouldn't have taken any of this stuff on trust but I think I was probably naive enough to be convinced by Russell's arguments at least well having mentioned a bunch of big names in philosophy this might be a good time to ask you question 3 is there a work of philosophy you wish were more well known I mean it's it's a really good question it varies with what I happen to be reading at the moment especially as I I read a fair bit of what I I take to be kind of obscure philosophy I mean on the other hand right one has to worry about how much we really know about what other people are up to and what other people read and I don't mean that in a very skeptical way I just think you know these large sociological claims and thoughts that philosophers bandy around sometimes have to be taken with a grain of soul but but one one book that used to be very widely read and isn't so much now that I think is important and worth reading is John Cook Wilson's book Statement and Inference so this was put together from lecture notes after his death but but it it's a really good I think it's a really good summary of various strands of his thinking around logic and knowledge and, and I think it's a really valuable a really valuable text it's full of ideas and those ideas figured in the background to the work of lots of more widely read philosophers, including J.L. Austin. And so, so I, I wish more people would go back to this text and mine it for ideas and, and also mine it for an understanding of the development of that kind of period of philosophy. So from around kind of 1900 to around 1960. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask if you were forced to give an elevator pitch for the contents of statement and inference, like what the highlights are, what would you pick out? Okay, so so the in a way, the overarching argument is around the idea that statement is a kind of mongrel. So philosophers talk about statements. Nowadays, they talk about propositions. And they often think of these things as if they're just a single uniform kind. Whereas Cook Wilson thinks of statements as really a kind of disjunction of various kinds, each attached to its own kind of speech act or attitude. So he'd think, for example, that the statement you gave in expressing a belief was of a completely different kind from a statement you'd give in expressing a piece of knowledge. And really, that's that's the kind of core idea of the book. But on the way to that, on the way to kind of developing that long argument, Cook Wilson's major, major kind of thought has to do with the idea that knowledge is a state of mind of sorts and is absolutely primitive and analyzable. Indeed, he, he presents a very compressed, but I think very interesting argument that knowledge can't be broken down into into smaller components. So if you think roughly that knowledge is at least partly mental. So knowledge involves some kind of a connection with human psychology. Then the thought might be, okay, knowledge itself can't be mental, but it has to have a mental component. So you might think, for example, that the mental component of knowledge is belief. But that will only work if you think that knowledge is analyzable. So if you think that knowledge has no parts, 
but is at least partly psychological, you're more or less forced directly to think that knowledge as a whole is an element of human psychology. And that's a kind of nice, striking result. It's been kind of replicated by some more recent thinkers, but it has a really clear home in Cook Wilson's work. And he has very interesting things to say around it and in defense of it, I think. Yeah, ideas like that have been definitely very influential in McDowell and Williamson and and others in the last 20, 30 years. There's another aspect of what you said about John Cook Wilson that was really fascinating, which is the idea that apparently uniform types of statement have a kind of hidden variety, which has an almost Wittgensteinian feel to it. Is there a connection there? I was sort of expecting Cook Wilson to be a kind of Oxford realist of a kind that would be inhospitable to these this sort of Wittgensteinian thought that I'll teach you differences. Do you have a sense of the connection? I don't have a sense of any formal connection between Cook Wilson and Wittgenstein, except that Cook Wilson was very widely read until around 1950, especially in Oxbridge. So, so it's quite possible that Wittgenstein was exposed either directly or indirectly. But I mean, Cook Wilson is like J.L. Austin in his interest in an attention to ordinary language. So he's very keen to pay attention to the kinds of distinctions that ordinary language seeks to draw, just as as Austin would be. So there's a way in which there's at least that kind of common element, that they're both Wittgenstein, Cook Wilson, also Austin, are concerned with what we'd ordinarily take to be distinctions. And they think they should be taken seriously in a way that they're not always taken seriously by philosophers which is, as you say, the I'll show you differences doctrine. Well, you said earlier that you were hesitant to make guesses about the sociology of philosophy, but I'm going to force you to express desires about the sociology of philosophy. So here's question four. What do you hope for from philosophy in the next 20 years? Well, one thing is related to my worries about philosophers doing sociology. And and I can put it like this, I think, that I'd like it if philosophers became more generally philosophers than they sometimes are. So I'd like it if philosophers were as rigorous in addressing this sort of question and all sorts of other questions that they they engage with as they are in trying to address questions in their own specialist fields. So I'm thinking here about the, the sorts of things one sees in philosophy blogs and certain kinds of pub discussions amongst philosophers where philosophers are willing to make assertions, pronouncements about about philosophy, how it should be done, uh, and so on, that aren't really defended in the kinds of rigorous ways you'd expect their ordinary first order views to be defended. And, and I think that's that's potentially a problem. You know, just as an example, you can have fairly ongoing discussion, fairly serious ongoing discussions with philosophers about the optimal length for a piece of philosophical work, be it a book or a paper. And philosophers will take their views seriously about those things without the sorts of argumentative defence that they'd expect others to give of similar claims in, in more straightforwardly philosophical areas. Well, there are sort of two ways to respond to that. One would be that philosophers should continue to address those questions, but do it more rigorously and maybe in in print, not just in the pub. Another would be that philosophers should be more laid back or sort of not not police those issues in quite the same way, even informally. I mean, it sounded like your preference was 
for the former to to keep asking those questions, but to take them more seriously. No, no, I'm I'm absolutely open. I mean, ab- about length of work, it would be silly, I think, to have a view. There's there's my pronouncement. So, so one shouldn't one shouldn't have a, a firm opinion about those sorts of things, especially in advance of of serious rigorous engagement. But on the other hand, right, there will be questions that philosophers engage with that they could engage with more carefully and would engage with more carefully if they saw themselves as engaging qua philosopher. So there are philosophical issues that philosophers are willing to engage with, but don't seem to take as seriously as they take their professional subject matters. And I think that's a problem. So so it it goes precisely across your disjunction. Either we should be much more open-minded or we should be much more careful, I think. Well, I'm going to end by returning us to Iris Murdoch and another quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, what is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Another great question from Iris. I, I mean, what I'm most straightforwardly afraid of is heights, and it's quite difficult perhaps not impossible to translate that into philosophy. So you might think it would give me a fear of the vertiginous in philosophy or or something like that. I I think that's probably my most significant fear, but but it might be connected with fears that have more kind of philosophical cachet around losing control, madness and the like. So so I I guess I can see where Murdoch's coming from. But I can't see a straight line from my most basic fear, heights, to, to anything philosophical. Well, instead of swerving towards philosophy, let's swerve towards the personal. And I'll ask you, do you have, what's your worst experience of vertigo, the most harrowing experience you had? I mean, there are so many. One of the worst was going up the Twin Towers in New York where I just kind of tricked myself into getting in the lift and the lift started going up and went increasingly fast and, and opened. And then I, I came out, realised where I was, crawled around the side of the, the, the centre of the building, back to the lift, got back in and, and went back down. Um, that, that was pretty awful. But, but there have been many, many bad experiences with heights, all, all of them my own fault. <laughs> Well, with, with the, the dignified vision of you crawling around on the top of uh, the World Trade Center, I'll say thank you, Guy, for appearing on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's been fun. Guy Longworth is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick. He's the author of Comprehending Speech, Sharing Thoughts About Oneself, and Other Essays. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.